So back in the fall, I, I, um, I went and was a part of kind of like, um, I, I told, talked about this a few weeks ago, kind of a lead pastor cohort. And this is uh, kind of one of the concepts that came out, a fruit of that. And uh, it's kind of what I would call my, my identity circle, all right? It's kind of like in concentric circles here. And so, um, so at the core of my being is I'm a child of God, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, and I'm a pastor. And this is... Um, this probably will come back at a, at a future sermon. I'm just going to give you a heads up. Because I'm going to say something here that I'm not talking about in my sermon. Um, what we need to do with this is to reverse the order. And this is what I mean by that. Normally what we do when we talk about, like someone asks, hey, like what do you do or who are you? Tell me something about yourself. What we normally start with is what? The outer circle. So I'm an engineer, I'm a teacher, I'm a principal, I'm a barista, I'm a student, I'm a pastor. And then we work in, and usually we don't even get to the core. And what he, and what I'm trying to do in my own life, is to start at the core. I'm a child of God. And then how does that bleed into the other three? That's another sermon, all right? That's just a freebie, okay? So come back. Here's what I'm trying to do with this. Is that uh, if I would take one of these identities, specifically, like, let's say I'm a dad. It's kind of a core of who I am. I'm a father. Nobody else can be my kid's dad, so to speak, all right? If I would try to resist that identity or even ignore that identity, then that creates a lot of havoc in my life. Are you following me? That creates some chaos in my home. That creates a lot of anxiety inside of me. It creates a lot of frustration in me. It can create a lot of anger. And if I try to deny that identity, so to speak, sometimes I can get at the end of the day and not even recognize, like, what am I here to do on earth? Like, what's my purpose? Because... Because if I'm primarily defining myself as a pastor, because I think that's what I do in this world, and that's how I'm going to really benefit the world, then being a dad can get in the way. And you can translate that to your own work. So today, we are talking about um, the mission of God. Us joining in on the mission of God. Of Jesus, and so even when I use that language, it's 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 like um, it's stuff that we say, but we don't know what we're talking about. Or I'll say it personally: it's stuff that I talk about a lot, and I'm not even sure what I'm talking about. And so, what I'm wanting to do today is, as best I can, is to allow Jesus to define what it means to be on mission with Him. What does that really look like? And remember. This is the good life. This is how life is to be lived. And here's what I want to say. If you don't hear anything else this morning, if you fall asleep, which is, you're free to do that. No, no guilt, amen, no shame. I might look at you and yell at you really loud, but no shame about that, all right? But here's what I want to say. If, if we primarily think about mission as an activity, as something that I primarily do, then hear me, hear me. You will never move the needle. 
you will be where you are today this time next year as far as engaging in the mission of God. Because if all I see it as is an activity that I do, then anytime I talk about mission, you'll just bring up your walls and you'll just tune me out. Because being on mission with God is not primarily about an activity. It's about who you are. It's a fundamental identity. That is who you are. Are if you are in Christ and as long follow me and I'll come back to this at the end as long as you try to resist that as long as you do not engage into this work as long as you try to ignore that identity listen man you're going to be frustrated you're going to wake up at the end of the day and go what am I here for what's the point of my being what's my purpose there's going to be a whole lot of disappointment in our life. And look, guys, I'm not trying to say that disappointment in our life is a direct line always to a lack of living into this identity. I'm just trying to say maybe it's an option. It's a good possibility. Now, where do I get this idea that mission is not primarily about an activity? It's more about our identity. Well, I get it from Jesus. So I feel like I'm in pretty decent company. Amen? And that's what he lays before us here. He doesn't start with what you're supposed to do. He starts with who you are. I mean, look at this. Verse 13. What does he say there? And it's underlined, so read it out loud with me. What does he say? You are the salt of the earth. And the original language, you, is at the very beginning of the sentence. And the reason why it's at the very beginning of the sentence is because Greek language didn't have punctuation. So if we want to emphasize something, what do we do? Okay, wow, that was really good. My old school says you put an exclamation point. New school, some kind of emoji. Amen, right? You, you put something in there with emotion. Well, in the Greek language, we didn't have emojis and they didn't have punctuation. So if they want to emphasize something, they put it at the very beginning of the sentence. And this is at the very beginning of the sentence. And so Jesus is looking at this crowd of a bunch of misfits. I mean, read the end of, end of chapter 4. This is not like the stellar group. This is a bunch of disciples who are fishermen and clueless and absolute morons, right? We see that as the story continues on, just like all of us in this room, including me. This is a group of people that are marginalized in society. There's, there's brokenness, disease, sickness, crippled people, demon-possessed people that are listening to Jesus, and he's looking at them going, you! That's the emphasis, you all the salt of the earth. I know you don't feel very impressive. I know you don't feel like you are that. But guess what? That is who you are because you are relationally connected with me. And you is not only emphasized, it's plural. Now how do we say plural you in Kentucky? Y'all, right? So if we had our our Kentucky standard version of the Bible, that would be translated y'all. And that's what he's trying to say. It's not just, an, like, like it's interesting, right? Most of us in this room, when we read that, we just think about ourselves. That's not what Jesus is thinking about. There's a way 
that the community is the salt of the earth that an individual cannot be. So y'all <laughs> are the salt of the earth. Salt in that time uh, is similar to duct tape in our time. It is. It had all kinds of purposes. Amen? I mean, duct tape does everything from, you know, patching up a pipe to making a prom outfit. Amen? Like, it's the, that's the gamut of duct tape. Kind of similar with salt in this day. Salt was used as a seasoning, as a preservative, as a cleansing agent, as a fertilizer. It was used in covenant rituals. It was used in sacrificial offerings. It was used as a metaphor for wisdom and wit. And so what people ask is, what, what part of salt was Jesus thinking about as far as its use when he said, you are the salt of the earth? I want to say all of them. Because the point that Jesus is trying to make is he's not trying to say there's one little perspective about salt that I'm going down. No, he's saying, look, anything that salt touches, it changes. It permeates and alters whatever it touches. That's Jesus' point. I mean, think about it, guys. Look. Think about it, like, can you imagine eggs without salt? I can. It's like eating a plate full of vomit, right? <laughs> I mean, that's awful. I mean, why would you ever eat eggs without salt? That's crazy. They're horrible without salt, right? Can I get a little bit of an amen, right? But salt comes into eggs and bling, it's like the pixie dust, amen? It's like, this is amazing, right? As Jim Gaffigan would say, right? Um, you think about like even how it breaks down meat, it can tenderize meat, it can change the flavor of a ham, right? If you put salt in it for a long period of time, it goes from ham to what? Country ham, right? It's like amazing. I love country ham. Some of you hate it because it's too salty for you, right? You know what I'm saying? But that's what Jesus is trying to say here. It's not necessarily trying to figure out exactly how he's using the metaphor, but what he's saying in a general way, whatever salt touches, it changes. It will permeate and alter whatever it touches. And he's looking at this community of people, and he's saying, look, it's not that you ought to be salty some of the time. He's not saying that you should be salty now and then. He's looking at this community and saying, you are salt. That is who you are. And then he gives this warning. Look what he says here at the uh, verse, what is that, verse 13, kind of the middle part of verse 13. But if the salt should lose its taste, right, how can it be made salty? It's absolutely no good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So if, if salt becomes unsalty, literally it becomes dumb or foolish, meaning this, that it's no longer able to fulfill its purpose or its essence, then salt is worth nothing. Now here's, here's what I want you to hear. Jesus, technically speaking, is not saying that salt can become unsalty. Because if salt can be unsalty, then it's no longer salt. It's like a little powdery white dust. It's not salt, right? What makes salt salt is because it's salty. Yes, thank you for playing along with this. But here's the point. It's almost like Jesus is going like, hey, hypothetically go with me on this. Kind of follow the metaphor. 
if it would be possible for salt to lose its saltiness, then it would no longer be doing what it's created to do. It would no longer fulfill its purpose. It would no longer be living into, quote-unquote, who salt is. Are you following me? And so the danger that Jesus is presenting to this community is that we, as a church, can become unsalty. So when is that law? When is it that a community of disciples, translation, the church, when can they become unsalty? When can they lose their salt? Or how does this happen? It's when we specifically identify ourselves as Christians and then ignore the Beatitudes. Are you following me? That's the context here. This 13 through 16 isn't just a verse that lifts up in the air, void of its context. So how do we become unsalty? Is when we identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ and then ignore the way of being in this world. So I, I don't lose my saltiness when I fail to bring Jesus into every conversation. That's how people define mission. I got to go to the store. I'm feeling a lot of guilt right now, but dadgummit, I'm going to bring Jesus in a conversation with somebody, and I'm going to chase him down if I have to, right? I'm in a plane. I'm sitting beside someone. God appointed this. I believe he's in sovereign control. If I don't talk about Jesus here, this won't count. I'll be punished. Something will happen to me. The plane will go down, and we'll all die, right? Maybe I'm the only one that thinks these crazy thoughts, all right? But listen to me. Here's my point. My point is this, is that, and this is the point of Jesus. We don't lose our saltiness necessarily when we fail to throw Jesus into a conversation. We lose our saltiness when we fail to be merciful to those who do not deserve mercy. We lose our saltiness when we fail to step into the suffering of other people. And weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. We lose our saltiness when we fail to be peacemakers. But instead we throw a log into the fire and kind of stir it up again. Look, my saltiness is not just about what comes out of my mouth, but primarily about how someone experiences my presence, my way of being in this world. Look, mission is not primarily about an activity. It's primarily about your identity and living into that identity. You are the salt of the earth. And he doesn't stop there. He goes to another one in verse 14. Look what he says here, all right? You are what? Say it out loud. It's underlined. Amen? You are the, yeah, light of the world. Guys, look, it doesn't take like someone has a PhD in biblical theology to understand what's going on here, right? We get this metaphor. Light does all kinds of things. It illuminates, right? Illuminates, right? It, it helps people see. It has a way of kind of pushing back the darkness in order for us to see the way. That's what 
what light does. Like, think and reflect upon this metaphor. It's not rocket science here. He's not trying to make this really, really difficult for us to understand. But just like he did with salt, he brings in a warning, right? So you're the light of the world. Now look what he says here in the next phrase. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. It's impossible to miss a city on a hill. Why? Because of their combination of lights. It's so bright. You can't miss a city sitting on a hill. It's going to draw your attention. You're going to see it. He goes on, kind of explains this warning in verse 15. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. Why would anyone light a lamp and then hide it? Right? That's stupid. Amen? That's what Jesus is saying here. That's just Lyle's translation. It would be like you coming into a room and saying, oh, God, sorry, it's so dark in here. Let me turn on the light. I just spit all over the place. Let me turn on the light so you can see. And then a few minutes later, you've got a ladder climbing up to your ceiling with duct tape because duct tape can be used for multiple purposes. Amen? And you're trying to duct tape the, the light to get it out of there. Everyone in that room be going, what are you doing, moron? Right, you turn the light on in order for us to see why in the world would you want to hide it. You light a lamp in order to put it on a stand so that it will give light to the entire room. When you hide it, you're keeping it from doing its purpose. So just like salt is created to be salty and distinctive, and change whatever it touches. Look, light is created to shine. That's what it's created to do. And when you try to hide it, you're keeping it from doing what it was created to do. And so when you unite yourself with Jesus, this is who you are. You're the light of the world. It's not an activity. It's an identity. And what is light created to do? Say it out loud shine that's exactly what jesus says here in verse 16 in the same way now he's bringing us all together for us so we can understand what he's talking about let your light shine before others so that they may see what your good works if you've got your own bible or if you're in your bulletin there take your an arrow and go from light or from shine to good works because they're synonymous that's what he's talking about what is shining? Good works. And goes on and says, look, and give glory to who? Not to you. I mean, they may high-five you, pat you on the butt, whatever, but the ultimate goal is not to give glory to you, but to your Father who is in heaven. So shine equals good works. And what are those good works, Lyle? Beatitudes. Context. Context context it's a way of being in this world and when you don't live into this way of being look what jesus is saying you're hiding your light paul gets around a similar thought in philippians chapter 2 where he says this starting in verse 14 do everything without grumbling and arguing what's that sound like 
Blessed are the peacemakers. When you're grumbling and arguing, you're just stoking the fires of conflict. You're just trying to create some drama. And I don't know about you, drama doesn't equal peacemaker. Amen? Okay, maybe just one. Me, right? Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Blessed are the peacemakers so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine. You shine like stars in the world. So Lyle, if the, if the danger in the salt metaphor is to become unsalty where we lose our distinctiveness, we don't live into this way of being, the Beatitudes, what's the danger with the light metaphor, well, the danger with the light metaphor is that we will hide it, and we'll hide it in one of two ways. We'll retreat or try to vindicate. You follow me? So in the salt metaphor, the danger is to lose our saltiness. We lose our distinctiveness. The danger in the light metaphor is that we're going to hide it. And how do we hide it? We retreat or we vindicate. Now, where do you get that, Lyle? Well, look at verse 11. There's a connection here, guys. I think sometimes we've taught this passage and never thought about how it connects to the Beatitudes. And Matthew's making a very specific way for us to see the connection between verse 11 and the start of verse 13. And if you got your bulletin, I want you to get it out. I want you to see a pattern that's been broken here, all right? Follow this. Starting in verse 3, I'm not going to read them all, but just follow the pattern. Blessed are... Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Verse 11, you are blessed. The pattern's broken. Why? Because Matthew is wanting to make sure we connect this section to verses 13 through 16. And this section, starting in verse 1, says you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Connection. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Connection. Jesus is helping us see that our... um, Our salt is the saltiest when it's in the midst of circumstances that are being described in verses 11 and 12. Our light is the brightest when we're in the midst of circumstances and situations that are happening in verses 11 and 12. So when is the church the saltiest? When it's suffering. When it's being accused of things that are not true. When it's being slandered for doing what is right. When is the the light of the church the brightest? When does it shine forth the brightest? Not when everything's going great. No one pays attention to that. I mean, that's what C.S. Lewis is trying to get across in his little book, Problem of Pain. And he says this. Listen to what he says here. We can ignore even pleasure. Are you following what he's saying here? Just because everything's going wonderful in your life doesn't put Jesus on the spotlight. 
everything's going right great with other people in this world who don't even give a rip about Jesus. You can ignore even pleasure, but look what he says here. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, and he speaks in our conscience, but listen to this, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So when's the church the brightest? When it's going through seasons, like it says in verses 11 through 12. And at the same time, follow me here, follow me. There's a temptation and a pull that whenever we're going through seasons like we see in verses 11 through 12, to retreat. Because when the world is giving us pain, then what do we naturally, instinctively do? We want to avoid it. So we get in our, our relationships that we feel safe at and comfortable with because they believe like I believe. They say the same things that I say. They look like me. We try to avoid. We stay quiet. We don't want to engage. We don't want to involve ourselves. We don't allow our light to shine before others. And Jesus is coming to us and saying, look, resist it. Resist the temptation to close yourself off to the world because the world is bringing pain. And instead, he's encouraging us to show up and shine. Because it's in the midst of these kind of circumstances that your light is the brightest. So not only is it a temptation to retreat, but the second one is what? It's almost like the other extreme of it is to vindicate. We want to be proven right. Whenever someone's slandering us, whenever someone's persecuting us, we want to prove them wrong and show that we are right. Most commentators make the argument that the second temptation of Jesus is this very temptation. That Satan brings Jesus up on this the pinnacle of the temple, and says, cast yourself down. Why does he want to do that? It's because he wants Jesus to prove himself. He wants Jesus to vindicate himself and show the other people that he truly is who he says he is. And then if you fast forward all the way to the cross, Satan is not there in person, but he's enticing the crowds to tell Jesus to do what? Get down. Get down off the cross and prove, right, to us that you are who you say you are. Vindicate yourself, Jesus. And that's a temptation for us because anytime we try to vindicate ourselves, listen to me, guys, listen. And maybe it's more harm than even retreating. You are hiding your light. They can't see it. I've been reading through um, Russ Moore's book, The Storm-Tossed Family. And he's got a little chapter at the, close to the end of it. And it's entitled this, uh, Family Tensions and Family Traumas. That's a great title, amen, right? And in this chapter, he talks about a conversation that he had with an older gentleman who came to his office um, really distraught uh, and, and to the point where he feels like, I, I feel like I'm denying Christ. 
And after he kind of shares the story, what, what's kind of going on with this, uh, this, this father, he's got a, a, an adult daughter who's not a Christian, who had a live-in boyfriend, who they had a child out of wedlock. And he came to Russ Moore just talking about the guilt that he feels because he wasn't turning every conversation that he had with this daughter around kind of Christianity and the morality of marriage and sexuality. And so because he wasn't turning every conversation around there, he feels like he's denying Jesus and full of guilt. And so as Russ Moore probed with different questions, here's what he found out, and I got the quote on the screen here. He says this, I learned, talking about Russ Moore referring to himself, this dad regularly visits his daughter and that they have a normal father-daughter conversations, often filled with laughter and I learned that he is involved almost constantly in the life of his grandson. What this man didn't realize is that he was living out life heroically. He was a Christian model for parenting and grandparenting. But he felt as though he was denying Christ. Because every conversation with his daughter was not a sparring match over biblical texts on sexual morality. And look, there's my point. This is the sad result of the kind of adversary culture in which the church, which is us, in our zeal to defend the faith, has sometimes unintentionally presented the picture that our interactions with those who are not Christians ought to be constant arguments. Trying to vindicate ourselves. This is not how God dealt with us. This is not how God dealt with you. Guys, this is my concern with apologetics. Now, please don't hear me say what I'm not saying. I'm not against apologetics. I think there's a place where we need to understand why we believe what we believe. But here's my problem, is that a lot of those who are really into apologetics, their presence is felt as someone that I'm going to prove you wrong and prove me right. It's built upon vindication. And why is that the case? It's because individuals don't take enough time to self-examine themselves. That there's a lot going on under the water. And that maybe possibly the reason why you're drawn toward this idea of apologetics is because you've got a lot going on under the water that you don't even realize. And the reason why you're going to apologetics is because you want to prove yourself. And that posture hides your light. Because I, I have never met someone who gave their life to Jesus because they lost an argument. That's my concern with apologetics. That's my concern with boycotts. It's more about proving us right, proving them wrong. That's my concern about Fox News. Did you hear me? If your consistent diet is Fox News, then you need to listen to me. It is shaping and forming you. And it's not creating you a way of being that's represented in the Beatitudes. It's creating in you a way of being that you're trying to prove yourself right and them wrong. They are not the enemy. 
the devil is. No matter if they're a Democratic, Republican, whatever party they land in, every one of them are image bearers of God. And we, as children of God, have a calling on our lives to treat them like that. Please hear me. I'm not against listening to Fox News. I'm just trying to wake you up that it's forming you and it will create this vindictive spirit in you. i got to prove them wrong and prove me right. That's my problem with the Creation Museum. Because I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm not saying there's something immoral to it. I'm not saying you shouldn't go visit it. But every good thing like that has some side of it that will have an impact on culture that we don't ever plan And if a follower of Jesus Christ goes to that, and their spirit is, yeah, we're proving them wrong. Those idiots who believe in Darwinism, we'll show them. You never say that out loud, but I'm, guys, look. This is what's going on in here if you're really honest with yourself. And someone who's not a Christian, what do they see? Showing how wrong you guys are. Guys, we hide our light when we try to vindicate ourselves. If you're in Christ, you've been vindicated. You've been crucified with him. You have been raised to new life with him. And you are seated with him at the right hand of the Father. You have nothing else to prove. So Stop. You're putting yourself in slavery. And you're keeping people from seeing this light that God wants to shine through your life. I love what 1 Peter says. Once again, I think Peter's kind of like the journal entries of the Beatitudes. Look what he says here in verse 14, and then we're close to being done. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Follow me. That defense is nothing about you being right. The defense there is to show what source your hope is from because you're in a crappy situation. You're in persecution, suffering, pain, and they're looking at you going surprised, almost shocked. And so you're not giving a defense in order to prove yourself right. You're just showing them where this source is coming from so that you can be this way of being in the midst of a very, very dark season. Verse 16, yet you do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. So that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. You are the salt of the earth. Not maybe, not possibly. If you're united in Christ, that's who you are. You are the light of the world. And as long 
as we try to resist and not live into, I just think your life's going to be a lot of frustration, disappointment, asking questions. What am I here for? Jesus told you. Here's the good life. This is what you're here for. Go be distinctive. Be salty. Go let your light shine. Embrace the Beatitudes as a way of being and allow God to use that in your life. Look, guys, every single one of us, every single one of us in this room are here because someone chose to live in this way. They heard the call, empowered by the Spirit, they're living into this way of being, and they were salt and light in your life. That's why you're here. And God wants to do the same thing in you. And he's given you relationships, neighbors, friends, family members, co-workers, to where you can go and be this kind of people. God help us. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your, your help, your strength, that you would, by your grace, create a, a whole different kind of community right here that can go into the areas that you place us in and have a real influence, God. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.